Well, I'm very excited and eager to inform you that we've just hit another milestone and now we find ourselves in Mark chapter 13. <laughs> Who would have thought <laughs> we've made it so far? Mark 13. Would you turn to Mark chapter 13 and we'll be going uh, through verses 1 to 4. We'll just focus on these, although we will um, later on refer to more than just the first four verses. Um, let's, let's start from verse 1. Mark 13 verse 1. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Now this chapter, chapter 13 of the Gospel of Mark is loaded with prophecies. In verse 2, um, it's a prophecy that is near fulfillment and the rest of the chapter is far fulfillment it is about the end of the age the end times now just to help you to see the the absolute importance in making sure that we do spend good time studying this chapter please note the following this is the longest discourse, discourse meaning discussion. This is the longest discourse by Jesus on any single subject. Uh, when Jesus answered uh, his disciples here, his answer was not just a passing comment. No, it is by far the most detailed answer Jesus gave to any question he was asked. Furthermore, please note, all synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record this discourse at a great length. In fact, the Gospel of Matthew um, dedicated two entire chapters on this subject. Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Luke 21. Some people come to this discourse and they say, well, I don't really understand what it means. I don't know how to apply, how it applies to my life. So never mind it. Let's skip and go to the next chapter. Well, something tells me that this discussion is so important to Jesus and to the writers of the gospel. And if it's important to Jesus, should it not be important to all of us? If the Son of God spoke about uh, this subject at a great length, how could we ever skip it? We must hear it, we must study it, and we must endeavor to apply it in our lives. Now this, this chapter is called eschatological discourse. 
sorry about my uh, accent. It deals with the end of the age. It's also called prophetic discourse because it deals with the prophecies in the future. But most often it's called uh, the Olivet Discourse because Jesus taught this subject uh, while he was on the Mount of Olives. And as we begin to unravel this text and study um, the end times, as we begin to uh, see how Jesus will scan human history and uh, un unveil the future uh, before his disciples and before us, uh, we will see that Jesus had a very specific goal in mind. And that is to exhort us, to encourage us, and also to warn us, to make sure that we have devoted faith in him. That we have this enduring obedience to his word. Because after all, nothing catches our Jesus by surprise. He is sovereign over all. And those prophecies that he is just about to tell us, they are true. Because he said them. And he ordained them before the foundation of the world. And he will make sure that they will take place. And what's great about all of that is that as we continue to study the end times, we will see that Jesus will win at the end. I believe the reason why the scripture is overflowing with abundance of end of time prophecies is because there is that direct connection between our brains and eyes when they are teleported to the future and living a godly life in the present. In fact, this is why Peter in his uh, second epistle, after he uh, discussed at length uh, about the end times, he concluded and he said in Second Peter 3.11, in the light of the end times, he says, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? So let's keep this in our minds as we begin to dive into the Word of God. We desire to live a godly life as a result of studying eschatology, the end times. Well, just quickly... Uh, we want to have a bird's eye view. We want to just give you a quick background to connect this particular narrative to uh, the Gospel of Mark and where it fits in in the time uh, of Jesus in a Passion Week. Um, during um, the previous days, Jesus, what he did, he entered into Jerusalem and it was triumphal entry. That was Palm Sunday. And that's when he prophesied the destruction of Israel and he cursed the fig tree. And then on Monday, Passion Week, the Monday, he, he went into the temple. He cleansed the temple of the self-righteous Jews who were buying and selling in the house of God. And then now it's Tuesday, Passion Week. Tuesday. And while Jesus was teaching the crowds for the very last time, 
he entered into this public debate with the religious leaders. And, and through the debate, he finally, and with much ease, he exposed the hypocrisy of, of these religious leaders before the watching crowd. And as their masks fell off, what we found in the chapter 12 of the Gospel of Mark, in one hand, Jesus exalted the poor widow who gave all that she had. And on the other, Jesus passed the most severest judgment on those false teachers, those self-righteous religious leaders. And that brings us to today's very exciting, I believe, the, one of the most exciting passages that we will be studying in the Gospel of Mark, which I trust it will stimulate our thoughts about the end times. The, the outline for today will be very simple once again. It will be two points. One, near fulfillment. Second, far fulfillment. Right, so there is near fulfillment, and that will be verses 1 and 2. Far fulfillment will be verses 3 and 4. And by the way, this is not anything that is unusual. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets, so many times when they prophesied, they tend to follow this pattern where they would prophesy first uh, events that would take place very shortly, and then after that, they would they would jump into prophesying about things that will uh, take place in the future, in the far future. So we start with the near future fulfillment, near future fulfillment prophecy, and we read from verse one, and he says there, as he, that's Jesus, was going out of the temple. Now this, at that point, it marked Jesus' end of his public ministry. Jesus would no more preach out in the open. And Mark placed uh, the departure of Jesus here to indicate that Jesus gave his back to the temple. And it, what really meant was that it was Jesus' complete uh, and the utter rejection of the temple and the entire sacrificial system. Now you might say, well, where did you get that from? Well, I got that from Matthew 23, verses, verse 38, uh, because this verse uh, confirms this truth because it gives us Jesus' very last words before he left the temple. So in Matthew 23, verse 38, Jesus said, Behold, your house. Notice the personal pronoun. Your house. It is no longer my father's house. It is now your house. Why? Shekinah glory left the temple. And he continues on. He says, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate, abandoned, destitute. Meaning, as soon as I step my feet out of your temple out of this place then your temple is going to be like a ghost town why for i say to you from now on you will not see me until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of yahweh and it is on the heels of this indictment 
Mark says that Jesus left the temple. With no regards to its visible, splendorous glory, no recognition to this sacrificial system. And so, in the background, his disciples, they would have been shocked by what Jesus just did. They heard Jesus' stinging rebuke. They were listening to Jesus as he was uh, pronouncing this uh, judgment upon uh, the entire temple and the abandonment of the temple. And it was very hard for them to swallow. Why? Because they couldn't reconcile in their brain the magnificence of this temple, the beauty of this temple, and the denunciation of Jesus. So it continues on, and it says there, one of his disciples said to him. Again, if you've been with us for quite some time, you know that most likely this disciple would have been Peter because he's the outspokesman, he's the spokesman of the twelve. And then he said to Jesus, Jesus, behold, take a good look, Jesus. What wonderful stones. What wonderful buildings. Jesus, the temple is great. It's wonderful. Now, Peter wasn't exaggerating when he said this. This temple, it's called Herodian Temple, and it was considered to be one of the greatest wonders of the Roman world. Herod the Great, he wasn't a Jew. We know that. He was an Edomian. Um, but he wanted to impress the Jews. And he wanted to leave a, a long-lasting legacy so that people would remember him after his death. This Herod the Great, he took on himself this incredible project. And then he built this enormous temple. So gigantic. In fact... The landscape, the size of the landscape of this temple is 36 acres. That's huge. That's 150,000 meters square. Or if you want to just kind of imagine it, it would be almost equivalent to 21 uh, football stadiums. That's, that's huge. And, and yet history tells us, get this, just... Imagine just the magnificence of this temple. History tells us that from a distance, it looked like a mountain of gold. Why? Because much of its exterior walls were plated with gold. And let me read to you um, just a, a quote uh, written by Josephus, the historian. He was a historian at the time uh, of Jesus, and he wrote this. The exterior of the building, that's the, the temple, wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye for being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold. The sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes 
as from the solar rays. In other words, anybody would looked at this temple in the morning, he would have lo as, looked as if he was staring at the sunlight and they wouldn't be able to and they would have to turn away. Josephus continues and he says, To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. It's like a snow mountain. For all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. So the outer uh, supermassive walls of this temple were made out of white marble. And he continues on, uh, Josephus, and he says, Some of the stones in the building were 45 cubits in length, five in height, six in breadth. Now, in metrics, this would be equivalent to a stone would be 21 meters in length, two and a half in height, three in breadth. So the, the, the size of one stone would be almost equivalent to a semi-trailer. And, and if you do your mats, you would find this polished marble would weigh perhaps more than 100 tons. And there were thousands of them. And today, till now, the world doesn't know. No one knows how Herod the Great managed to get people to transport these stones uh, all the way and place them as the foundation of this temple. I mean, they were massive. They were huge. It was a breathtaking scene. There was an old saying at that time, and, and it goes like this. If you haven't seen a Herodian temple, you haven't seen anything. And so this temple was so awesome and it electrified the disciples. I mean, after all, look at the contrast. This magnificent temple, but yet the disciples were just only 12, most of them fishermen from Galilee. I mean, what's that? And then they would, they would never see anything like this, except when they go once a year to Jerusalem. And so they got caught up by the external appearance. But here now we have Jesus who looks through the facade, who looks right through the glamour of the temple. And all that Jesus saw was destruction. The disciples saw outward impression. Jesus saw inward crumbling and a ready-to-collapse building, a skeleton. So Jesus says in verse 2, Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? <laughs> what do you mean? Of course he saw great buildings. There is nothing that Peter could see at that point but great buildings. Great in size, great in strength, great in silver and gold. And then Jesus continues on and he says to Peter, <laughs> Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. Meaning, you, 
You think because of the size of the stones and the price of gold that this is great? Jesus says, let me tell you what I see. I see nothing but religious leaders and thousands of lost dead souls that are damned and headed for hell. I offered them this temple as a sign to show them that I am their God. To set their hope in me, to commune with me and to rely on me, to depend on me. But sadly, they chose to hold strongly to their self-dependence, their self-reliance. And that, and that sacrificial system in the temple, is, is, it was meant to be an arrow pointing to me, a, a visual aid to remind them that I am their savior. That I will provide a way to escape future judgment. That in due time I will offer myself freely on their behalf to save them from their wrath to come. But what a tragedy. What a tragedy. They rejected me. They forsook me. I am their fountain of living waters. And instead of coming to me to find forgiveness, they place their hope in the act of worship rather than in me, who is the object of worship. They fix their eyes on the temple rather than on Christ, who is really the God of the temple. And the very temple that was meant to be a place where man finds rest in God alone through Jesus Christ alone, because of their wickedness, this temple has become nothing like that. This temple now has become only a representation of man's achievement, man's power. Man's prestige. It is by Herod's strength, by man's strength, we can build such mighty fortress. Who needs God when we can do all that on our own? Jeremiah 17, 5. Thus says Yahweh, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from Yahweh. So Jesus says, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. This temple is not great. It's garbage as far as I'm concerned, Jesus says. The external beauty of this temple is barren from true worship. It's not just going to be abandoned. It's going to turn into a heap of rubble. So Jesus' prophecy was literally fulfilled in 70 AD. It was at that time insurrection 
where the Jewish people, they revolted, they uh, rebelled against the Romans in their attempt to overthrow uh, their sovereignty over Israel. So the emperor at that time of um, uh, insurrection, um, he sent a troop led by his son, the Roman general by the name of Titus. And Titus, he sieged Jerusalem. And the Jews fled and they hid in the temple. Now I want to pause here. I want to show you how amazing the sovereignty of God is. That no one could ever oppose God's divine will. Let's just park here. I want to tell you something about history that really magnifies the power of God in action. This Roman's general, Titus, he never wanted this temple to be destroyed. He loved this temple. He wanted to preserve it. So he gave a command to his soldiers to only kill the Jews, but they must preserve the structure of the temple. But one soldier, just a, a puny soldier, out of his sheer hatred for the Jews, willing to risk his life, he dared to defy the command of his general, and he picked a torch and flung it through a golden window, one of those amazing windows of the temple, and the fire spread throughout the place, and it was gutted. The gold was looted by the Romans, and they didn't show any pity for the elderly children or women as the Roman soldiers massacred over a million Jews at that time. Titus knew he lost all hope. He couldn't save this structure. So he changed the order. And then he gave another command and he basically said to them, just destroy everything. The entire city of Jerusalem as well as the temple. And so Josephus says that even the very foundation of this temple was dug out. I don't know how they did it, but it was dug out. In fact, let me read to you another quote by Josephus. He says this, um, that it was so completely raised to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot no reason to believe that it had ever been inhabited. Just absolutely vacant, as though... It just never existed. There was no stone left on top of another. And then, and after that, the Romans of that time, they oppressed, of course, they continued to oppress the Jews, and they flushed them out of Jerusalem. And it was known as a time of dispersion, because at that time, the Jews were scattered all around the world. Israel at that time lost its status as a nation, as we know, uh, for over 2,000 years. And Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled to the letter. This is the sovereignty of our God. Isaiah 14, 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely just as I have intended, so it has happened. And just as I have planned, so it will stand. Verse 27. For the Lord of hosts has planned. Who 
can frustrate it. And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? Meaning, who would dare to challenge God's purpose? His purpose will always prevail. Exactly as I planned, it will happen without any opposition. That's why in Job 42 verse 2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours that can be thwarted. God's purpose will be fulfilled to the minute subatomic level with no error margin. And the destruction of the temple serves as a lesson to teach all of us who really is in charge of human history. And it is God, not man. God is in charge of human history. Well, that's the first point, the near fulfillment. And what is the near fulfillment? The destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple. And the second point is the far fulfillment, and that is the destruction of the world. So the destruction of the temple is the near fulfillment, and it was just a preview to what will happen in the future to the entire world. So the second point, the far fulfillment. Now, when Jesus gave this shocking prophecy that this massive superstructure will come crashing down, please note that the disciples did not allegorize what Jesus said. They didn't spiritualize Jesus' prophecy. They didn't see the temple as a symbol that was pointing to something else, but it's not really going to be destroyed. No. Th they took every word coming out of Jesus as literal. And so they sought more information. So we come now to verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, now, when, when it says that Jesus was sitting in the, on the Mount of Olives, Olives, it doesn't mean that Jesus just crossed the road and he's about 10 meters away from the temple and he's kind of looking at it. No, um, between the temple mount, so the mountain where the temple was sitting on, and that Mount of Olives, there is a valley called uh, the Kidron Valley. And so for Jesus to sit on the Mount of Olives, it would have to mean that he had to exit the eastern gate of this uh, temple, walked down the, mount, the temple mount, he had to cross over this valley, and then climb the steep path up to the top of the Mount of Olives. Now, please pay, no, pay, pay attention to Mount of Olives. It is so important. I don't want you to miss it because Mount of Olives is one of the most important landmarks in the redemptive history, particularly in the future. Mount of Olives was where Jesus got arrested. 
a Mount of Olives was where Jesus ascended to the highest of heaven as he sat at the right hand of the Father. And it is where Israel in the future will, will be severely oppressed and they will repent and call upon Jesus to save them. And according to Zechariah chapter 14 verses 1 to 5, Mount of Olives is where Jesus will return at the end of the age. He will split this Mount of Olives in half. And the remnant of Israel will flee through this crack between the two sides of the Mount of Olives. And so this is where Jesus will begin to slaughter all his enemies and save Israel. And so Jesus now climbed this Mount of Olives. And if you put one plus one, you would just work it out in your mind. Then you would say, look, you know, that around the time when he reached the top, well, it uh, would have been a long time in the temple teaching and preaching and debating. And then after that, we'll come out of the uh, temple, walk down, cross the valley and climb up the other mountain. Surely it would be around sunset or just after the sunset. You can just imagine the stars now begin to sparkle. Um, that backdrop of the black sky and the temple with all of its amazing torches now begin to stand out um, before the rest of the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus now sitting at the top of the Mount of Olives. Now the top of Mount of Olives is 45 meters higher than the temple. 45 meters higher. And he did this intentionally because he wants to be in an elevated position and have this bird's eye view and to have his disciples' peripherals taking this full panoramic view of the, this amazing superstructure of the temple, the city of Jerusalem, and even beyond this as far as their eyes could see. 360 degrees. And it's there. And at this time, we continue reading, and it says, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. These four uh, disciples, if you recall, they made up the, the inner circle of Jesus' friends. So um, the disciples, there were 12 in, uh, of them, and they were broken down into uh, three circles. And Jesus now, this is his closest circle, and they got him off by themselves away from the rest of the disciples. And what did they do? They asked him privately. Privately? Why? Well, this is huge for, for the temple to be destroyed. It's not just the end of Israel. To the disciples, it will be the end of the world. To the Jews, the temple was the center of the universe. And, it, and its destruction sent alarm bells in, into their heads. So they came to Jesus and they asked him two questions. Surely led by Peter. 
And it says there in verse 4, tell us. And then I asked two questions. The first question, when will these things be? It's to do with timing. When will these things be? The second is, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? So the second question is to do with signs. The first is about when, the time, and the second, the content, the sign, the what. Why are they asking? Because Jesus just said something that just arrested their attention. No doubt, these disciples connected the destruction of the temple to the end of human history, to the end of the age. It captured their mind. And now Jesus is about to unleash an answer that extends beyond the 70 AD. And he will grab their minds and their eyes and will teleport them through the passage of time, and he will flick through the future chapters of human history, and he will give them a detailed answer to the sign of the end times. There's a group of Christians who are called preterists, who, unlike the disciples, they like to spiritualize everything. They want to allegorize every text that they feel uh, uncomfortable with. And they say, surely this does not really mean that. Surely it means something else than what it actually says. And, and they do much violence to the text by forcing the text to mean something that the author never intended for it to mean. And so this preterists these kind of people they ended up teaching that these prophecies were already fulfilled at 70 AD I want to give you two reasons why I believe that what Jesus had in mind what Mark had in mind when he penned down the um, next few chapter verses is that he had in mind far fulfillment prophecies and they have not yet been fulfilled these prophecies two reasons number one the disciples questions had to do with the end of the age the end of the world now where do i get that from now first of all notice the the plural in verse four when will these things be? These things. What these things? What's that? Well, for that, would you turn to Matthew 24? And we'll read from verse 3. Matthew 24 is a parallel account to this Mark chapter 13. And look at how the second question was worded in Matthew 24, verse 3. The second question. Where now they're asking Jesus, and it's more specific, and he, sa and he says there, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
So what are these things? It is your coming and the end of the age. Your coming. What does it mean? What did they have in mind when they asked Jesus, what are the signs of your coming? What, is this, what will be the sign of your coming? I mean, they were not in a church age yet. They didn't have in their minds two comings of the Messiah. We need to understand that. They didn't see a church age that stood between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. You know how we, we do believe that, right? There was a first coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago. There's a church age and there is a second coming. They didn't see that. And rightly so. Why? Because the Old Testament prophets, they never put a gap between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. That would just generally just prophesy about the first coming and bang immediately after that, they just continue on and then they speak about the second coming. That's why Paul calls the church age mystery. Mystery which was hidden but now has been revealed. But as far as the disciples were concerned, it was just one coming. So, when they asked Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming? I mean, Jesus was already with them. But what they really meant was, when will you come in your full power and glory? Meaning, when will you reveal who you really are to the world? When will you establish your earthly kingdom as the scripture clearly prophesies? Is it next week? Is it next month? And the disciples were looking at the end of time. And to affirm that, the very next question that they had, it says, what will be the sign of the end of the age? Now this end of the age is a technical term and it is used five times in the New Testament. Every time it is used, it is in reference to the end of human history and the second coming of Christ. Let me, let me read to you a couple of verses. Matthew 13, 49. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. Matthew 28, 20. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's just to mention a couple of passages. But now we need to understand, just put it in, pr in perspective here. Jesus just prophesied the near fulfillment, you know, the, the, the destruction of the temple. Why? Why were the disciples asking about the end of of the age. Why? Well, let me tell you why. Because the disciples knew that uh, in Ezekiel, in the book of Ezekiel, um, Ezekiel prophesied of the future temple that is going to be built. You'll find that in a, uh, um, starting from uh, chapter 40 all the way to uh, 48. Chapter 48. So there's going to be a new temple that's going to be built. 
and that temple is going to be built once the Messiah inaugurates his earthly kingdom. So for the Herodian temple to be destroyed, they would have thought, surely Jesus will not leave us without a temple. Surely he will destroy the old, only so he would build one for us that is much better and much greater. They never anticipated that there will be 2,000 years interval between a destruction of the old temple and the construction of the new one. And so they were, they were thinking, well, the new temple, according to Ezekiel, necessitates this age to come to an end. And the Messiah would have to wipe out all the nations that oppose us, and he will immediately reign in Jerusalem. And they were asking about the sign of all the complex events that will be culminating to the end of the age. Jesus, Jesus' response was not that he was telling them about the sign preceding the destruction of this temple. No. But according to Matthew, Matthew clearly wrote for us, Jesus was responding to their question about the second coming and of the end of the age. That's what they had in mind. These are the questions that the disciple asked, uh, the disciples asked of Jesus. That's the first reason. The second reason why Jesus' answer is about the end of the age is because what is written in his chapter of Mark, chap uh, in chapter 13 of Mark. So please go back and have a look. We want to go through some verses. And I want to show you that that they would be impossible to, to conclude that they were fulfilled. Uh, they can only be fulfilled when Jesus comes back in the second coming at the end of time. So verse 7. Jesus continues and he says, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. The end of what? Surely can't be the end of Israel. It can only mean the end of the age. Why? Well, first of all, that's what they asked. But secondly, because continue on with verse 8. For, there's a direct connection there between verse 7 and 8. For. Nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. What Jesus did here is that not only he teleported the disciples to the future, but now he zoomed right out of Israel's map and he's telling the disciples to look at the entire globe. He's basically saying that there will be cataclysmic events affecting nations and kingdoms worldwide with large magnitudes. And what are those events? Continuing on, there will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. Notice the plurality here. Earthquakes. Not just earthquake, multiple in various places, there will be famines. Not just one famine, multiple famines. 
And where will these disasters take place? Jesus just told us, nations and kingdoms. This will be worldwide catastrophic events. Now you might say, well, but there's always been wars and earthquakes and famines. Well, we'll continue reading, continue reading the very next sentence. It says, these things are merely the beginning of what? Birth pangs. What does that mean, birth pangs? Birth pangs are labor pains. You know, at the time when um, a pregnant woman uh, is about to give birth, for most of um, the nine months, she's not really having any labor pain. But as she's approaching the end, not the end, not at the point of delivery, but just at the end, before she begins to deliver, what happens? She begins to feel labor pain. And as the time progresses and she comes to the time of delivery, what happens to this labor pain? It increases, it, in, in, it intensifies, and also the, the, the intervals between it, the frequency, it continues to increase all the more. And so basically what Jesus is saying here, that those Cosmic disasters, yes, they will be felt every now and then worldwide. But at the end of the age, they will intensify and they will increase in their rapid succession. You know, like before you can deal with uh, one disastrous problem, you'll be hit by another and, and another and another. You'll be just drowned in agony and confusion and chaos. And in verse 19, it zooms right into this period. And it says there, For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation. Meaning it's worse than the great flood, which God created until now and never will. It will be unparalleled horrors that will make World War II look like a walk in the park. That's what Jesus is saying. I just want to give you a sample of what the book of Revelation says about what kind of pain and agony that, we will be that the uh, earth will experience at that time. Hail and fire that will destroy a third of the world's crops. That's in Revelation 8.6. Another one. Rivers will turn into blood. Imagine that. Rivers will turn into blood. Revelation 16.4. Worse. A third of earth's population will be killed. That's Revelation 9.18. And, and, and not to mention in, in verse 24... In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And I submit to you that none of these ever took place at 70 AD. Now you might say, well, come on. Really, serious? Do you actually think that this is going to happen? I mean, you shouldn't take it literal. It's just symbolic, isn't it? Well, you remember the ten plagues on Egypt? I take them literally. Do you? Do you take these plagues literally? Now, if we do, 
Why can't we take these prophecies literally? The plagues of Egypt, remember? The Nile, what happened to it? The Nile River. It turned into blood, right? And here it says, at the end of time, all rivers will turn into blood. Again, another one. One of the ten plagues, hail and fire, destroyed all the crops of Egypt. And in here, hail and fire will destroy one-third of uh, the world's crops. At the time of Jesus, what happened to the sun? Yeah? Turned into darkness. So why um, these events that took place in history past, that we would take him literally, but when Jesus comes to prophesy that the same kind of event is going to take place in the future, they always say, oh, it's just symbolic. It's not really true. Why? Right? Now, you might say, well, but these plagues only affect one nation, not the whole world. But what about the great flood? Do you take that literally? When the holy God poured his wrath upon the earth. Now, if he literally literally killed all living creatures except for one family at that great flood. Why would you find it hard to believe that God would not literally do what he clearly prophesied that he would do in his second coming? That I don't understand. I honestly don't understand this. And verse 10 says, The gospel must first be preached to whom? Subnations. Most nations, all nations, all tribes, all kingdoms. Well, it's not the case now. And most definitely it wasn't the case in 70 AD. God will fulfill all his promises literally. He is a sovereign God and he does just as he purposed. He will do it. And furthermore, just like literally in verse 26, that they will literally see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Finally, Jesus will enter our atmosphere in his grand style. And his arrival will be as the arrival of an everlasting champion. And this mighty warrior, he will come bolting out of the sky, riding on a white horse. And you read that in Revelation, where he will be crowned with a crown of sovereignty and his eyes like a blaze of fire. And as heaven would make way for this king, and hosts of angels will march just Behind him, Jesus will burst into the scene and his appearance will fill the entire sky. All his enemies, all those who will reject him, will throw their kneecaps onto the ground, confessing that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But when he comes, the second coming, he's not going to come to save those unbelievers. He is going to come to conquer them 
with the edge of the sword. The Bible says that he will slay every last one of them. And his kingly robe will be soaked in their blood. And then he will throw their flesh to the wild birds to eat them and drink their blood. Before he will cast them into the hell like a fire. Then verse 27 comes. And it tells us that Jesus will dispatch his angels to gather all his people who will endure till the end. Those who are going to be alive at that time. And Jesus will assemble them. He will reward them. He will commend them. He will say to them, well done, good and faithful slaves. I was physically absent, but you continue to be faithful. You were not sluggish. You were not lazy. No, you never compromised. Against all pressure, you were eagerly waiting my return. You fixed all your hope completely in me. You strive to obey me freely and cheerfully from your heart. Come and share my joy with me. And I will join the rest of the redeemed and will enter into the joy of Jesus' earthly kingdom for 1,000 years and beyond that into the eternal new earth. Scripture makes it clear he will be with them and they will forever be with him. He will gladly serve them as they will humbly cast their crowns at his feet, immensely worshiping him continually fellowshipping with him, abundantly enjoying him forever to be loved and to love him. What a beautiful time to look forward to. Church, one thing I want to slot there before I finish, I just want to give you a, a word of comfort. You know, the scripture tells us that we won't go through this severe tribulation period. We won't go through it. Jesus will rapture his church seven years before his second coming. And you can see that in the book of Daniels and Revelation and a few other books in the scripture. And after when we're raptured and from heaven, we will look down and we will see these saints and we will cheer them on. Those who will believe during this period. But this is the next event in God's calendar, the rapture of his church. You might say, well, you know, but I don't see that in uh, um, all of the discourse. Of course you don't. Why? Because just like the church age is a mystery, so also the rapture of the church is a mystery. You will not find the church in this all of the discourse, nor will you find the rapture of the church in this uh, discourse. Why? It's a mystery. It's only meant to be revealed to the church after Pentecost. And so you read that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, 
at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. How comforting. How grateful to our Savior ought we be that he will snatch us before this dark time. Brothers, sisters, I want to tell you, as we come to an end, as we understand the end times, we will know this, that no matter how painful your trials are, no matter the pressure you're going through, Jesus will win at the end. Brothers, draw your hope out of this reality. Jesus will win at the end. Look forward to this greater joy. And with much zeal and eagerness, let's encourage one another. Remind one another that this is not our home. <laughs> this will come crashing down. It's all going to burn. Let it be that all that really matters to us is that what will last for eternity. And with much love and passion for unbelievers to be saved, and even with persecution, let us carry in our bosom the, the terror of the Lord and go into the highways and the byways and compel unbelievers to come compel them, urge them to do business with the coming king. If you're not saved, if you're not one of the redeemed, I plead with you. This coming king, he is not one king that you would want to mess around with. He will fulfill everything that is prophesied to the very dot, to the very T. And you better repent today while you have a chance. I offer you today Jesus Christ freely, unconditionally to anyone that will come to him. I urge you, consider your eternity consider what is at stake i plead with you by the mercies of god jesus christ was crucified two thousand years ago and he rose again and he has demonstrated how great of a savior he is come to him and you will find shelter from the wrath to come come to him and you will find refuge come to him you will find forgiveness to your sins. He will grant you eternal life. Let's pray. Lord God, history is your story. And we find yourself we find ourselves in this story. It is your story, Lord. We pray as we uh, begin this wonderful journey and go into the future and study the future that you help us lord to let go of the things of this world and just to more and more hold more tightly to jesus christ let our hearts burn with love for our savior 
And for those of people, those people among us who are not yet saved, we pray, Lord, that you would bring understanding, awaken your conscience. We pray for your spirit to convict them and to draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.